Diana Butler Bass is an author, speaker, and independent scholar specializing in American religion and culture. She holds a PhD in religious studies from Duke University and is the author of nine books, including her latest, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Diana regularly speaks at conferences, leads educational events for religious leaders, and teaches in a variety of venues. She also writes at the Huffington Post and the Washington Post and comments on religion, politics, and culture in the media, including USA Today, Time, CNN, Fox, PBS, and NPR. Diana joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we discussed how to connect the dots of awe, action, and compassion, how we may collectively relocate our idea of God to reground our very lives, and how we can be moved by the love that enlivens the earth and the mystery that hovers with us, for us, and ahead of us. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. The fundamental call of the whole Jewish and Christian tradition is to love our neighbors as ourselves. I realized that I was still only considering my neighbor as the person I liked. That, I think, for me, for me was the moment that I knew that I, I wasn't even sure I was really a Christian until I could say that out loud. Hey guys, Ashton Gustafson here, and welcome to another episode of Let the Music Play. This is where we chat about what it looks like and what it means and what it feels like to make music with our lives, our relationships, and our careers. We have a uh, huge honor today and such a treat. Uh, Late 2015, maybe early of this year of 2016, uh, a book called Grounded crossed my path. Uh, It's written by um, Diana Butler Bass. And uh, she joins us today. And guys, I'm here to tell you, this is one of these books that um, there was a lot of things that I'd felt for a long, long time, but I didn't necessarily have language for it. And, and Diana beautifully uh, brought to, to life and language so much stuff that I'd kind of known at a cellular, molecular level for so long. So with that being said, I can't wait to get into this conversation. Um, Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate being here, and it's it's always great to be able to talk about something that I've written. It's it's enjoyable because books have life just you know past the page. Uh, well, I tell you what, um, this was one of those books where. Uh, I think I underlined and highlighted, raised my hands, smiled, clapped from from start to finish. I just kept turning, kept turning, kept turning. Um, And it's just, it is packed with beauty. The book is called Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Now, let me just say this, and and we can kind of run a little bit. When, When you start on page one, uh, with the book dedication and you quote Wendell Berry, I know you and I are going somewhere. Um, <laughs> and, and so, it, you know, the page one just says a few lines from Wendell Berry, make a story, show how love and joy, beauty and goodness shine out amongst the rubble. 
right then and there, I was like, yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm all in, let's go. So do you want to share with us, <laughs> um, and maybe a little bit, share with us your work prior to this book, and then we can kind of get into Grounded a little bit. Yeah, um, I actually think that's a great frame uh, for this book. Uh, for a long time, I had dreamed about writing and spirituality and religion. And one of my big heroes, the person who always made me underline every word in her book, uh, was uh, Kathleen Norris, mm. who wrote, and she wrote some really great books. Um, you know, right around the turn of the millennium, kind of the late 90s and the early aughts. And those are really meaningful to me. And at that time, I was a um, mostly college professor. I was doing some journalistic type work for the New York Times on religion and politics. But I really wanted to write what I would call uh, literary nonfiction uh, that was about spirituality. Hmm. And, and that didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, for the first decade of the 21st century, I wound up writing mostly about congregations, hmm. and I I got a reputation, really, as being one of the few people in the United States who really understood what was happening, mostly with liberal and mainline churches. And so I wrote several books that were... Uh, really sort of ethnographies on how mainline congregations were worshiping and what kinds of practices made for a vital spiritual life in these churches. Uh, but while I was doing that, I kept feeling like, I don't really want to write about institutions. I want to write about the heart. Huh. And so fi- finally, uh, my publisher and I got to a place where they said, what do you want to write next? And I said, I, I, I want to explore this other territory. I want to explore a territory that opens up a conversation about spirituality that goes beyond the walls of the church. Mm-hmm. And so Grounded really does that. It's, it's a book that people who might still be part of a traditional congregation that they might love, I hope they would love it. Um, but it's certainly also a book that's intended to create bridges. Uh, between people who still attend religious uh, sorts of gatherings and people who have left religion behind. Hmm. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to explain it. And um, I, I think the bridge is a great thing because there are two, there's probably two sets of people that will read this work. You know, there's the people that have said, um, God, spirituality, church, no thank you. And then, and then there's some of us that have maybe been around for a long time and are kind of going, hey, there's got to be more. There, you can't just be more than than what we've been sold. Um, and one of the things that, that was just a huge idea for me, um, and I had never connected these dots before, was really how you chat through the vertical, vertically structured universe and the horizontal universe and I don't want to give my words into it because because I won't do it what what you can do. But you want to explain that a little bit and hold my hand by kind of what you were talking about at the beginning of the book about the shift from a vertically structured universe to a horizontal universe. Yeah. Well, I began to really explore that concept myself when I was doing this work around churches because 
I think part of the irony of the last decade of my own work is that here I was studying churches and trying to encourage churches to be their best selves in the very decade when church going and religion started collapsing hmm. um, in the United in the United States. And so all around me, wherever I was speaking, when I was doing my research, when I was um, interviewing people in churches all around North America, one of the major questions that they had, and I began hearing it as much as 15 years ago, is why isn't isn't our church growing? Why aren't people coming to church anymore? And so that question, I, I probably have cried about that and struggled with that question more than probably almost anybody else mm-hmm. I can I can think of mm-hmm. think of. And, and somewhere along the line, it just really began to occur to me that part of the reason for the decline in Christianity, um, it, it specifically and in religion more generally, is that the structure that we we have uh, for religion does not really mesh with the structure in which we live our lives right now. Hmm. And that is, I identified finally as this idea of a vertical structure and a a horizontal structure. And when I go to church, and I'm an Episcopalian, I have been for about 30 years, all of the language that's in my liturgy is language about up and down. God lives up in heaven, and God sends down grace, or down the Holy Spirit, or down the waters of baptism. So there's all these things that God is sending down to us. And um, our purpose is, and it even has said this in the older prayer book of the Episcopal Church, we lift up our hearts to God. Mm. And so our job somehow was that we had to go up, and that God was coming down, and somehow in that mixture of verticality, um, that salvation would occur. And then ultimately, of course, uh, what Christians believe is that when we die, we go up, you know, to heaven right. to be with God and, and not down, you know, to the other place. <laughs> um, but, but the problem with that is that in physics and philosophy and politics and economics and business, and just about every other kind of realm in which we as Western human beings live our lives, we don't think about up and down. Um, you know, you think about, say, around 2000 when Tom Friedman wrote his book about the flat, flat earth. Right. Flat earth. Yep. And, and so what has happened over the last 20 to 30 years is that all of the old structures of verticality, about how the king used to sit on top of society or how the company used to have a headquarters which sent down directives to a whole corporation. or um, It's just that whole structure of vertical, economic, political, and philosophical and scientific-like has disappeared. And it's all been replaced with talk about webs and networks and communities and flattened communication and uh, boundaryless sorts of societies. And and so 
that was really strange to me. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that our culture had moved to a sort of a horizontal plane, and yet church was still admired in vertical theologies, I thought to myself, well, maybe that's the problem. Hmm. And what would happen if you try to recast um, the great biblical stories and the sort of a lively, what I'd call a lively spiritual life, what would happen if you began to recast that, not in this vertical hope of all this up and down uh, sort of language, but instead in a horizontal frame about how God moves with us in and through this web of existence here on Earth in our lives. That, and so that's really the, the language of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple things that you say, uh, to relocate God is to reground our lives. God is not above or beyond but integral to the whole of creation and intertwined with the sacred ecology of the universe. Whoa. Uh, that was beautiful, by the way. Um, so it, Well, thank you. And that's what I've really come to... That's what I have come to be deeply committed to in my own, my own life. And, mm-hmm. I, and it's not easy to live. And I find myself often falling back under those vertical structures and yet I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hold myself accountable to what I actually wrote and to constantly, as I've been going through the last two or three years, writing the book and then launching the book and now post that launch, um, what does it really mean to live that way? Mm-hmm. And so, so, so I'm, I find in Christianity in entirely new ways in my own life right Yes, now. yes. And, and, and would you say that you've rediscovered it's a word I want to say, uh, a whole new wavelength, a whole new electricity, a whole new aroma, a whole new ground of being, for lack of better words, when you when you remove this idea of God is out there and you replace it with He is here, He is now, He is among us, uh, the Spirit of God is at hand. Would you say that that's been true for you? Um, yes. And the energy is different. Yeah. Because I think that the the sort of old vertical framework and uh, that I was still functioning out of. I was born in nineteen fifty nine. My my college age daughter always says, Mom, you were born in the fifties <laughs> and I always say, Well, almost not, you know <laughs> <laughs> Just at the very I'm edge. Almost, that's right, just at the very end of it. Um but I was actually, you know, born into a structure of the universe where all Protestants, whether they were liberal Protestants or or evangelical Protestants, our primary idea was, you know, be good here and you'll get to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And that God was up, the, up there in heaven and that somehow God was watching us mm-hmm. and that God was judging us and that God was going to hold us to account. Uh, for those actions um, when we don't, you know, when we finally die, and that's what we would be judged on. And, and you know, evangelicals and liberals kind of work that out a little differently. But the structure of the universe was the same, that it was a distant God who was sitting on a throne who was waiting to get us. Hmm. And so 
I think that most of my sort of moral and spiritual life, um, whether it played itself out, and it did play itself out in both liberal and evangelical churches, I've been members of both, um, it was always about that faraway God and trying to figure out how to bridge the gap um, between me and what I did here and that God, and being a bit afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah, um, whatever God is, it's some sort of spiritual entity that has a big bat and is watching you. Oh my gosh, I remember this one um, evangelical, it was almost a fundamentalist type church I went to in high, in high school, where they literally had us convinced that God basically had a, a gigantic um, video camera and was taping our entire lives. <laughs> D- <laughs> D- DVRing your bad behavior. Yeah, and it was terrible. It was terrifying that, you know, anything you did was going to be played back on this Kevin Lee video, you know, player uh, when you died, and that you were going to have to watch the film with Jesus. And mm. it the level of shame and fear mm. that mm. that bred mm. in me totally. as a teenager. You know, and I was actually a sweet kid. I really didn't do that much that was wrong. Right. You know, for me, that kind of vision, I think, really held on. It, it held on to all kinds of corners of my life, mm. even when theologically I was way in a different place. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but, na- but now, I think that as I ho- am holding myself, like I said, more to account of this idea that God is with us, this ever-abiding presence that, it, that dwells in and through the world in which I dwell, that there's this intimate kind of co-dwelling that goes on, yes. is that I understand I understand that God is really with me, yep. and that that's not a fearful thing, um, that it's not exactly kind of, the, you know, me and Jesus are great buds, but it is, it means that there is this presence of love mm-hmm. that is that is always at always right with me that can guide me and be access and can direct the choices that I'm making on a daily level. And um, I I do find that when I'm paying attention to that, I've actually rediscovered, I think, the power of some of the classical virtues of Christian life. Yes. I think that I've got a new appreciation for things like kindness and yes. mercy and patience. Yes. Um, all, all of which seem really kind of hokey on old-fashioned, um, but I think are really the things that many people are looking for right now as we sort of bemoan the loss of civility. And um, we also struggle with a division in our culture. Totally. That there really are, there really are these beautiful things that are the, that are sacred qualities, that are qualities of, of God, God's own self, that are right here with us. And part of that, I think, our 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 quest as spiritual beings um, is to open our eyes to those things and to begin to say, hey, I have a choice. I can act like a jerk. Um, I can act, you know, like a real, you know, I can use several swear words here. 
but that's not my style generally. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can really act terribly here, but I can also act as if my neighbor really matters. Wow. Wow. And, and what do I choose? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the awareness of a God who is standing in the mix of that choice, Rather than a god who's simply going to change some, you know, yeah. movie camera frame, um, makes it more meaningful to me and more powerful. And and so I, I feel like I've been going through a sort of a reconversion. Yes. Um, in the last, <laughs> the last couple of years. Right. I I'm right there with you. I mean. Um... And and I have to thank people like yourself and the Richard Rohrs of the world, the Parker J. Palmers, uh, that have. Um, it's kind of like they've they've given us the glasses that 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 were there for sure five hundred and a thousand years ago, but it, the Enlightenment made this thing very heady uh, and and turned right. turned things into a finger pointing game. Um, but mm-hmm. you, but you're right, rediscovering. Um, the, the posture, I would say the posture this gives your being of, um, if the tradition starts that you are loved and the engine of the universe is love, the whole, the whole experience shifts (laughs) with that realization. Um, and rather than, uh, shaming and guilting people and, and pointing fingers at differences, I'm right there with you on this rediscovery of of uh, of neighbor and rediscovery that every neighbor, whether here or halfway around the world, is an image bearer of the divine, um, and that really, really makes your moments very holy. Yeah, it does, and it sometimes can make it very hard. Yes, um, yeah. but I I think it's a a kind of challenge uh, that is just the kind of moral challenge that the world needs to be awake to. Yep, um, absolutely. Right, right, right now. You know, and I write in the book a story about um, how my neighborhood was deeply affected, uh, this was now two years ago, when a young woman who went to the local high school, she went off to university, and she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Mm. And uh, she was only a couple years older than my my own daughter. Uh, there are lots of people. She, she literally lived right around the corner from where we live. And so here's this you know this, this horrible uh, murder that happened, and it was on the news. It was one of those cases, you know, missing person cases where the attractive young woman disappears, and the whole country is looking for her. Um, so it was it was. It was a terrible thing, and it changed the way my whole neighborhood related uh, to one another. Mm. We we beca- we became a lot closer. We really began to understand how we how we are one, yeah. and that we really do love each other, even though we don't always communicate that. Mm. So so that makes a lot of sense. But this is the, the piece, the, the hard piece. And a, a few months after the murder happened, I was preaching in a church in Canada. And uh, it was very appropriate to bring this story 
to bear, because the passage was on forgiveness. And so I'm preaching about it, and in the middle of the sermon, when I talked about how the fundamental call of the whole Jewish and Christian tradition is to love our neighbors as ourselves, I realized that I was still only considering my neighbor as the person I liked. Hmm. And I, so I, so I, I kind of caught my own breath <laughs> in the middle of the sermon. And I said, and you know, the worst part of this is, it's not just Hannah, and that's the name of the girl who was murdered, it's not just Hannah who is my neighbor, but her murderer mm. is my neighbor, too. Mm. And that, mm. I think, for me, for me, was the moment that I knew that I, I wasn't even sure I was really a Christian until I could say that out loud. As radical of a transformation yeah. of that is. Wow. Because we we will. That's a, it's a it's a really hard thing to say. Mm-hmm. Is that the person who cuts off the head of the reporter on the ISIS video? That guy with the sword. That guy is your neighbor. Mm. The, the person who came and destroyed the peace of my neighborhood by killing a young girl who was completely innocent, that guy is my neighbor. Mm. Um, you know, these, that's what Jesus was talking about. Yeah. And, and to really begin to understand that as ethical framework in which we're supposed to live out that call what does it mean to love your neighbor? Yeah. That becomes a whole different kind of way of understanding what faith and justice and mercy and forgiveness and all these things are. You're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm tracking. That was big. Um, one of the things, and I didn't, I don't want to sidestep here too far off of that, but I, I, I did want to get into the metaphor of the elevator that you used in the book oh, sure. because this was, uh, when, when you broke this down, I was like, Oh my gosh, that is, that's such a good word picture. Um, and I'm going to read this part and then, and then I'll let you kind of riff on it a little bit. Um, and you said, whether conservative or liberal, most American churches teach some form of idea that God exists in holy isolation untouched by the messiness of creation, that we, God's children, are morally and spiritually filthy, bereft of goodness, utterly unworthy to stand before divine presence. In its crudest form, the role of religion is to act as a holy elevator between God above and those muddling around down below the world. Whoa. (laughs) Um... Walk with me on on the concept of that elevator as we kind of walk through that vertically structured and horizontal universe. Um, sure. The I actually have a slide in uh, one of my PowerPoint sort of shows where I took a picture of a church elevator, which is <laughs> a, a kind of a thing that I now have on my phone. I have all these <laughs> photographs of church elevators. <laughs> And what I what I try to communicate to people is that 
you know, we did have this idea that God exists in isolation up above, you know, the the whole of the universe, and that we're down here. And so that's the problem. That's the fundamental spiritual problem. Is yeah. how does a holy God? How does a holy God relate to us, or how do we relate to a holy God? And so there's a. I think that the sort of the, the basic structure is that church mediates that gap. And so it, it depends on whether it's a Catholic elevator or a Lutheran elevator or whatever it is. But they all kind of work the same way. So God sits up there in heaven, and God puts something in the elevator. And say it's the, the, the Catholic church. Well, God throws in seven sacraments, and the elevator gets sent down here to earth. And then the elevator opens up, and there's seven sacraments inside. And um, because we're so corrupt, we can't even approach the elevator mm. and touch and touch that stuff. So that there's a sort of what I call a special class of holy elevator operators. <laughs> the brokers. <laughs> the brokers of all things God. <laughs> That's right. And their job... If they've gone to seminary to figure this out, you know, a holy elevator operator school, and um, their job is to go and they they touch whatever has been sent down, and they turn around and then they say to the people who are gathered around the elevator, you know, the doors are open, they say, "Hey, keep do this in remembrance of me, or confess your sins, or do penance, or whatever whatever the thing is." And then we, if we respond in the correct way to whatever has been offered in the elevator, well, then after we die, we get to rise the elevator up. And so that's the illustration for the Catholic Church, but you can easily imagine all the different religious traditions uh, fitting in there. You know, so if you're an Episcopalian, you get two sacraments rather than seven. If you're a Baptist, it's a Bible that comes down at you. You know, if, it's, if you're Pentecostal, you get you get the gift of tongues. You know, so there's all sorts of different things that can come down in the elevator. But that's the structure of salvation. God sends something down to get us, and there's somebody at the doorway that mediates Whatever comes out of whatever comes out of the elevator, mm. and then however we respond to that thing, um, that becomes our salvation. And so, and your argument is there is no elevator, and right? <laughs> that that what was in the elevator is actually in the sunset, and what was in the elevator is actually at the dinner table with you and your family and the bread and the wine, and what was in the elevator has been here all along. That's right. Yeah. What I, what I argue is that there really isn't a gap. <laughs> there's awareness. And, <laughs> it's Right. It's, that, it's, that, you, you see, there's eyes to see it. That was the only gap that, that was really there if you didn't have the eyes to see it. That's right. And actually, it's very interesting to me that the Christian, the Christian story is really strong on this point. Yes, um, totally. We have this thing that happens at the very beginning of the Christian Bible, and that's called the birth of Jesus, what we call theologically the Incarnation. Hmm. And that means that God becomes embodied in 
human form and lives and moves and breathes in the world. Moved in the neighborhood. And yeah, lives in the neighborhood. And and so then people will say, Oh well, you know, but he he died and he went away and he now sits at the right hand in heaven. And I said and I have responded to that question and I started that comment and said, Yes, and that's exactly why the Holy Spirit comes. Right. And so we get this sort of the second stage of that story of the embodiment of God in the world by the the Pentecost story, mm-hmm. which is that spread of the Spirit of God that knows no boundary of ethnicity or language or religion, where God simply shows up as a living fire in a crowd of humanity that then goes out from that point and spreads the good news of a God who loves the world, loves the cosmos, mm. as it says in, in the, the Greek New Testament, uh, so much that the, the presence of God is now available in and through the entirety of humanity. Wow. And so the, and, so the biggest shift that you're really bringing to light here is the dialogue of of. Where is God? God's always been out there, up there, over there. It's no, 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 no. Uh, I'm right here with you. I'm here right. now. I'm in, I'm in the midst of this moment. Right. So good. And the, the, the Christian story to me is fascinating as well because it, it harkens back to the, to the first two chapters of Genesis, you yeah. know, where... But we have the creation, and that I love the first two chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. If, I, I, if I was stuck on a desert island and you wanted to give me just the shortest thing possible <laughs> to read forever, I would read, I would take the first two chapters of Genesis. Dwell on, dwell um, on that poem for a while. But, <laughs> like, you know, in that, it's when God creates the world, God is dwelling with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. That that of that mutual dwelling and that intimate sort of walking together, that that is actually the state that human beings were always intended for. Right. And and so what we have in the New Testament is we have the Christian vision of how we get back to that divine intention. And so it, it's not a story about God taking us out of the world. Um, the Christian story is always intended to go back to that Jewish story yeah. and say, how do, how do we get to what God always dreamed of for us? Hmm. And so, so Jesus tells these amazing tales and does these amazing things and embodies that presence so that we understand the curse of Genesis has really truly been reversed and that we have the possibility of living just as God dreams um, here. Yeah. And oh, by the way, uh, Genesis began with blessing, not with curse. <laughs> I know. Isn't it, it's beautiful, isn't it? I love it, actually. I mean, uh, but how <laughs> how much my part of the world tends to point at the curse uh, rather than, hey, don't you remember the story begins in Genesis 1? Um, yeah. I know. <laughs> that's, 
God says it's good, 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 very good. Right, right. The whole thing begins with good. We kind of mess it up a little bit, but there's this thing called redemption, um, and that's what's happening. So, yeah. Um, well, then let me... Uh, one part I wanted to just kind of come off here because this was a big dot connector for me, too, is when you wrote about kind of crafting that new theology. Um, and, and if I can read this, um, you say that the implications seem stunningly clear. People believe, but they believe differently than they once did. The theological ground is moving. A spiritual revolution, revolution is afoot. And there is a gap between that revolution and the institutions of religious faith. Why is this yeah. why is this happening? The answer may be simpler than some suggest. At the same moment when massive global institutions seem to rule the world, there is an equally strong counter-movement among regular people to claim personal agency in our own lives. We grow food in our backyards, we brew beer, we weave clo- cloth and knit blankets, we shop local, we create our own playlist, we tailor delivery of news and entertainment. In every arena, we customize and personalize our lives, creating material environments to make meaning, express a sense of uniqueness, and engage causes that make uh, and engage causes that matter to us and the world. It makes perfect sense that we are making our spiritual lives as well, crafting a new theology, and that God is far more personal and close at hand than once imagined. Uh, I don't even know where I go after. Do we? Do we? Do yeah? yeah, I'm I'm like I'm like yeah. (laughs) Well, hey, if your own writing is making you cry, you were dialed in when that one came off. Um, So so kudos to you. Um, Yeah, and I'm like covered in goosebumps here. Uh, So walk with me in that. It makes so much sense when you go. You mean we've got agency in this thing? Um, You mean we don't need a broker to bring the spirit near it's here. Oh, and by the way, when we were taught to pray, he taught us on earth as it is in heaven. Um, That's right. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's like, duh, when you, when you write it that way, so beautiful, go ahead. Well, I, I I can't really claim great originality on this point because with my daughter, who is it? Who literally she just went to college for the first time. Oh, wow. a freshman. Um, and so we, we just dropped her off a couple weeks ago. And uh, she began to really point this out to me. Uh, you know, I I didn't understand anything about playlists. <laughs> I, I bought albums, al- you know? That's right. <laughs> I, you know, and then I started seeing what she was doing, you know, with her phone. And that she would create these sort of soundtracks you know, for her own life, and that it would be a little this or a little the other thing and whatever. And that she would put this together, and these playlists uh, became memories and community builders and sort of motivational hmm. soundtracks and and mementos of things that were meaningful for her. Um, and so I, I, I really began to understand that, it's sort of what people are beginning to do with their spiritual lives. And so I, I, I was mentioning this to some of my friends who are like bishops and theologians, and they said, oh, but that, you know, that's really dangerous. 
um, <laughs> there's there's no there's no room for the church in that. And I said, well, that's not really true, is it? And they said, well, what do you mean? You know, you have to like buy the whole album. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're an Episcopalian, you know. And right. I said, well. Well, maybe our album is kind of dull, huh. you know. Well, but maybe we maybe we have a few good songs. Wow. And and I said, so what's the matter with people picking up the stuff that's meaningful to them? And they said, and so this just began. I began to really play with this as a metaphor. And I, see, I I actually do believe there is quite a space for uh, the tradition. Yeah. I think I think that there is incredible space for the, for liturgies and written prayers. Absolutely. And hymnody and you know praise songs and Saint Augustine and Hildegard of Bingen and all of these things. I think there is incredible room for all of that. And what I said, churches and religious organizations are more sort of called to do is I think that they're sort of called to think of themselves as um, sort of maybe um, uh, gatherings of these kinds of traditions, and that their job is to kind of put together a playlist that people will find meaningful. And so, like my daughter, you know, she might pick up this one song from an artist, but the truth of it is that she hears a song that she really likes, from one artist, she'll go and she'll listen to another a bunch of other songs. Yeah, yeah. from that that art artist. And before she, before I know it, she has a whole playlist of the Avet Brothers. You know, right? Um, or and she or, and the Dixie Chicks. I mean, gosh, she loves the Dixie Chicks. She <laughs> listens to everything the Dixie Chicks ever wrote. And so <laughs> the truth of it, it, the truth of it is, is that we do craft these things in very eclectic ways. But that there are some artists whose work appeals to us at such a deep level hmm. that we actually actually do buy the whole album. Hmm. And that's what I think is if, if if religious traditions can think of themselves as artists in that way. Yeah. Who are designing a sort of a playlist of meaning. Pointing pointing back. At, yeah. yeah, and that they yeah. can create this sort of pool of beauty and resources that people can both draw a little bit from, and, and honestly, I think that any church should be deeply grateful if somebody runs by their door and says, I just want that prayer. Hmm. You know, maybe that's all, all that, that people ever need from that tradition. Hmm. But if that one prayer, prayer is there, it could make such an enormous difference to lots of people. Well. Or someone who comes by and hears that one prayer and says, "I want to know the whole, the whole story." And so I think we have to be oh. open to both of those things. And and so that whole playlist analogy or that self-construction piece, I don't think that denies the power of the entire corpus of the tradition. But I think it means that people access it differently. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. That makes so much sense now when you put it put it that way. Wow, beautiful. Maybe all we need is off to offer one prayer, and and that can help that one person in that one time. 
Um, wow, beautiful. Yeah, and if that person then goes on to construct whatever their playlist winds up being, and they craft and, and they craft something beautiful. Um, that's right. Yeah, then we we they craft something that leads to more peace, more self control, more joy, more forgiveness, more love. Then you may have done your job. That's right. <laughs> that's good. Um, and I think the the power in that is giving people permission. Yeah. To do that in yeah. in ways that do do increase goodness, mercy, love, kindness, all of those things. Yeah. Because people are just doing it. Mm-hmm. And right now, a lot of people don't feel the permission to do that in such way that they feel like they're sort of breaking some sort of rule if they're doing it about faith or religion. Right. They feel like they still have to do things the way their grandparents did it or whatever. And we we don't. Hmm. We can do it in different ways while still honoring the past. Mm. And I think the more people who have a sense of freedom in that kind of new constructive reality of our spiritual lives, that that can begin to outweigh the people who are constructing things that are not very nice. Mm. And the people who are constructing it in not nice ways, they don't feel like they need permission. Right. They're just, <laughs> they shove it down your throat. They're doing it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, go, 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 good people. You know, you have my permission. <laughs> Need permission? I give it. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Permission to go find beauty and wonder and awe wherever you find it. If, That's right, if, and share it as widely and, as you and can. share it. And if it's true, it's true everywhere. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. And if it's not. If it's not, it'll fail. And yeah. that's, one of the, that's one of my very favorite parts of Scripture, where Jesus actually talks about that, you know? Is that if it is good, if it is of God, it will succeed, it is to be blessed. Whoever is not against us is for us. Mm. Um, you know, all of that beauty. I don't know, I don't know why those kinds of permission-giving moments of Jesus' ministry are have been so forgotten by the church. Yeah. You know? Jesus yeah. was very inclu- inclusive about stuff like that. Totally. Wow. This is good. I could do this all day. Um, <laughs> so, uh, one of the things you did for me in the book, um, when you start talking about creation and, and dirt and water and sky, is you kind of reawakened... Um, like I've I've always since I was a young boy and I would go hunting with my dad I I I felt a um like I can remember walking on wet damp autumn leaves at like 6 years old in the woods and and having wow. having this thought there's something going on here <laughs> this is this is more than just random leaves that fall like there's a there's an energy there's a flow there is a a rhythm uh, that's going on. And so, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed amateur cosmologist, um, which just basically means I know a handful of really random facts about outer space. Um, (laughs) but, uh, you, um, so you did a great job of like, um, really giving me holy awareness to where, where I am, where we are. Um, and, and I've always known it, but, you know, I mean, you write in there that there's no such thing as a secular farmer. 
which I'm like, duh, yeah. Um, and then uh, you talk about water and how water has always had a, a very, very close connection to all things spiritual. Um, and then when you talk about sky, I loved uh, how I, I didn't know that we got the word consider uh, uh, from the French um, that means observe the stars. Like a, that to me was a meal in itself of just wrapping my hands around that. Um, talk, walk me through a little bit of the awe that you personally gained through just what you were learning and studying and observing about the dirt, the water and the sky that surrounds us. Oh gosh. That again was a gift from my daughter. Hmm. Um, when she was, in her early teenage years, she turned around to her dad and myself and said, you know, I'm just really bored with church. And I, and, you know, so here we have that millennial kid who's saying that is a mom who's writing about churches. And uh, <laughs> my, my husband also works, right now my husband works in a Methodist church. He's not a pastor, but he's a very uh, professionally successful lay leader gotcha. um, in churches. And so um, so anyway, uh, my so my husband works at a big Baptist church right now. So here our daughter looks at us and says, well, churches is boring. And <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? This is the conversation that you never think you want to hear. And uh, so I said, well, where do you find God? And my daughter said, when I'm hiking, and it was at that moment that I knew that I had a choice and that I could be one of the parents who says, well, you may find God when you're hiking, young lady, but as long as you live under our roof, you're going to go to Eucharist every Sunday. Mm. You know, and totally you're going to show up with us. Blow out that candle. <laughs> right. You're going to go to us with, with us to church all the time. That's just what we're going to do while you're living here. Or... I thought I could be a different kind of parent, and that is that I could learn to hike. Wow. And I, I, I talk about this in the book, that I really didn't love the outdoors. Um, I was kind of scared of it. Um, so this was a big change for me, that I had to walk outside. And it was in that walking outside and trying to figure out how I was going to connect my daughter and her spiritual life that I began to try to see creation with new eyes. Hmm. And so it was through, through that relationship um, and through the opening of my own eyes that I began to um, kind of explore inwardly a new conversation about creation, about the, the earth and the water and help me read the Bible differently, certainly. And I just became a lot more aware of it all. And now I find that I actually can't live very well without a sort of really significant daily connection mm. uh, to, the nat- to the natural world, whether it's through my garden, which I'm actually looking at, or when I'm sitting here talking to you through the window of my office, um, or walking along the Potomac River, which is right near my house, or a few weeks ago, we were down at the beach uh, for for vacation, and uh, we go to North Carolina, so the the light pollution in that part of North Carolina isn't 
is is very low. Hmm. And there was this one one night we looked up and there was the Milky Way just above our heads. And we laid out there on the deck of the house and just sat in silence for about a half an hour and just stared at the sky. And those kinds of experiences of wonder and awe are doorways, I think, um, that are open all the time around us totally. uh, to experience thoughts. To yeah, you you write that if we understand that we are dirt, that God is the ground of all that is, well, then yeah. we might think twice about how we treat the soil. And if water is the river of spiritual and physical life, we will care about what we are doing to watersheds. If air sustains us and we are made of stardust, then the sky and what happens to it matters. Um yeah, I mean, you e- even, I mean, I'll say this, even the conversation of like, where is this food coming from now in the walls of my house because of this book is causing me to ask new questions. Um, it's also causing me to like really love farmers. <laughs> That's a weird thing. Like uh, I live, you know, in a very farm centered culture in North Texas, but like, these people, they, they, they are a huge part of our society that get very little credit. Um, That's right. And, and it's awakened me. But, but the dirt, the, the stars, the sky, the ocean, um, it's all, it just has a new electricity um, with what you've shared here. And, and a beautiful thing that you, that you get to is how when this type of awe is stirred up in us, so when, when you start to see that, uh, it's not that the ground became holy, it's that the ground's always been holy. And when you start to get this reverence of everything that's going on around you, um, there's studies that show that that awe and that reverence actually lead to better action and more compassion. Is that right? There actually is. There is an entire study out of, I believe it was Berkeley while I was working on my book. And, um, I was so thrilled that I ran across it one day while I was, you know, actually finishing up the chapter, that when a person has those kinds of experiences of spiritual awe, that it increases their capacity for compassion and doing justice. Let's go. Because Listen to that. We, <laughs> I know, that is so fantastic. Because usually what happens is people pit those two things against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say... They'll say, oh, yeah, well, you can go get your jollies by, you know, meeting God on a trailhead on a mountainside somewhere. But what are you going to do for the poor? Yeah. Um, evidently, it's now scientifically demonstrated, <laughs> at least by a couple Berkeley professors, <laughs> that if you do meet God on the trailhead, you're more likely to uh, do something about the poor in your neighborhood when you get home. Unbelievable. And so... That just brings to mind what you were saying at the very beginning of this conversation. Um, I've been very influenced by Wendell Berry mm-hmm. as well. Yep. And one of the things I did not want to do in Grounded was simply uh, enter into the American Romantic tradition about the spirituality of nature, uh, because the Romantic tradition is sometimes only looked at the good of nature, mm-hmm. and what I think Wendell Berry points out so beautifully in his work is that he, there's hardly a person who writes more beautiful things yeah. about the beauty of nature yeah. than Wendell Berry. Totally. 
but but he also writes about the crisis of it all. Yeah, yeah. And so he he interweaves all and action, and I really wanted my book to be um, kind of a homage to that. Um, I did not want to just say, oh, it's so romantic, it's so beautiful, and then leave out the people of Flint, Michigan, who look at the river and say, well, that's not beautiful, that poisoned my kid. Hmm. Um, but instead, I wanted to try to create some sort of um, ethical and spiritual vision that would incorporate both the all and a, a broken heartedness you know, about the Flint River that would give us the ability to save bodies of water like that yeah. so that they can, they can do what they're supposed to do, and that is run clear, and they're not supposed to poison people. Yeah, sustain us. Um, right. And, and you you bring it home uh, really well um, towards the end of the book where you say spirituality is not just about sitting in a room encountering a mystical God in meditation or about seeing God in a sunset. Awe is a gateway to compassion. It is a deep awareness that we are creators, creators who work with the creator in an ongoing project of crafting a world. If we do not, and I love this part here, if we do not like the world or are afraid of it, we have had a hand in that. And if we've made a mess, we can clean it up and do better. We are what we make. Wow. Sounds like that is an amen from the crowd, I hope. <laughs> sure, it's from this crowd it is. Um, uh, yeah, golly, so beautiful, so inspiring. Um, and so off the path a little bit, um, where... So, well, thank so, you. Actually, I appreciate that. I'm always trying to do the unexpected thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's part of my vocation, is to point just a little beyond the ordinary. And so to say it's a little bit off the path, I like that. No, that's a compliment. Uh, and and, and one of the, you, you end the book by, by this, and I just kind of want to walk through this with you. When you say that now I am moved by the love that enlivens the earth, and the mystery that hovers just beyond sight. God is here. God is with us and here. Um, how, how do we take that, that beauty? How do we take that stance? How do we take that posture into the world, lead our families, lead our businesses, and do the good that we all want to be doing? Well, there's the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just much. Yeah, feel free to answer that in just a little snippet. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm saying that, you know, now that I wrote the book, I'm challenged myself, you know, to, to live it. And a, a simple thing that I've been doing this year, and I, I hope it's, I, I hope it's going to make a difference. I, I'm still in the middle of this sort of um, experiment, and that is, I challenge myself to try to eliminate as much vertical language as I possibly can. Interesting. From from my prayer, worship, and ethics vocabulary. Huh. And so I've been really self-conscious about what I pray and what I say. And um, 
that is kind of redirecting my attention and making me see things differently. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I hope that some of your reader, your listeners won't be offended. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I think that people know pretty well who have read my political stuff is that I'm, you know, I'm kind of a progressive, I'm pretty much a, a liberal. And I haven't ever really been very shy about that politically. It's an awful thing to say in Texas, I know. But, um, <laughs> <You're fine. laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but this has been a really weird political season because here I've been trying to figure out what does it really mean to live this kind of compassion that I've written about. And I've decided that one of the things it means is I have to treat Donald Trump just like he's my neighbor. Wow. And so you have been transformed, uh, Diana. This is transformation. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it's really hard. Yeah. To, yeah. to look at at somebody who you disagree with so intensely, and who you know, I really hope he doesn't win. Um, but I've also decided that there are ways of managing political discourse even in social media. Yeah. And I think you've been, you, you've been, don't you have kind of this gratitude type thing going on right now where I do. You're, you're not shooting, sh- shooting guns and slinging words. You're, you're, you're putting the good out there. I've challenged my, my friends and readers through social media posting. I started on this on 75 days away from the election. And so um, I challenge them to post 75 days of posts about goodness, mercy, and kindness. And um, it's really interesting. There are a whole bunch of churches that have taken it up, and um, there are also friends, just sort of independent friends of mine who have taken it up. And um, I've, when I'm on social media, I kind of I, I look at stories, and I actually decide if the story I think is written from some place of cruelty, mm. I will not retweet. I will not retreat. Which retweet it. Um, I will share information that I think is proven and legitimate and factual, um, and I will do that about candidates. Um, and I do have some preference of showing things that I think are factual and disturbing about Donald Trump. But I won't just tweet crap. Hmm. You know, I'm not going to put out stuff where people are calling in names or trying to destroy his reputation or anything like that. I'm simply, I simply try to put things out that I think are legitimately true. And so, so see that to me is a, a an actual live consequence that, of what I've written. Absolutely. Yeah, if you want to see more mercy, that, be merciful. Right. That's exactly right. And and if you make a big deal about that, if you've written a book about compassion, you can't be a hypocrite. Right. I mean, I suppose you could be, but um, it would make me feel really bad. And if my mother was still alive, she would not let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to answer for that. I would. And so I figure that one of the most basic obligations of a writer who puts her words out in the realm of spirituality and ethics is that she has to practice such truth. Hmm. And so I don't, 
you know, I'm a sinner too. I don't do it well all the time, but I'm trying. And and I try to hold my readers who really care about what I write. I try to hold them gently to account if they want if if, if they ask, you know. And um, so I think we can live better. I think we can live better in politics. I think we can live better in business. Um, and if I can say that, I live outside of Washington, D.C., and I'm trying to make my neighborhood better this way. Um, I think pretty much anybody can. <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> try to, you can try to live that way. Wow. Because uh, my, neighborhood, my neighborhood is a tough nut to crack. Um, you know, people, people live, eat, breathe politics in my neighborhood. Right. And... Uh, to have them care about gratitude and kindness, which I feel like is kind of my vocation, is um, is a big deal here. Wow. Yeah. So who are you voting for? Well, let me ask you what What are your thoughts on gratitude and kindness? That that shifts. That totally shifts the tone of that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. <laughs> and, uh, uh, maybe that's what we uh, need. Like I said, it's it's a challenge. But uh, I, I can tell you this, uh, I, I sort of got to be friends through this, this book and a couple other things I've written with uh, David Gregory, who actually is uh, the political correspondent on CNN. Yep, yep. And, uh, and David wrote a really interesting book this last year uh, that is on his own spiritual journey. Interesting. Which is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. He's Jewish. And so um, David and I have teamed up to start a, what we were calling a spiritual think tank in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, so we've just begun this dream that we have of trying to create a, a more generous heart in the heart of the nation's capital. Wow. Um, and so we're trying to practice what we preach and see if it makes any difference, even in this, like I said, what is a very difficult neighborhood, to have people uh, talk willingly about God and goodness and kindness. David and I are giving it the best shot we've got. That's a feat in itself. Um, (laughs) No doubt, but kudos to you. Um, Yeah, and I would imagine most people that throw mud and and sling really negative things back and forth, it's not their fault. They've they've probably just never been shown a better way. Um, And you're showing them a better way, so thank you. I mean, that's, that's how you change the world. And, and we're trying. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, it's a it's a beautiful adventure, and it's it's interesting to me. I really appreciate this conversation because one of the things that I think is kind of fascinating that I didn't anticipate is that I'm in my mid fifties, and I feel like I I finally am coming to some really deep understandings of what the Christianity that I've proclaimed all my life is really all about. Wow. And to me that's so exciting is that it's yes. not a it's not a it's not a one moment deal. The mystery you know? the that, mystery unfolds. The mystery unfolds. And that there is that meat of the gospel uh, that we're told is there and that it just keeps calling us, I think, to a to new places the older we get and the more seriously we take it and so it's, it's really quite a um it's not, i used to call it a journey but now i think it's more of a dance yeah yes so, at let the yeah. music play podcast we like hearing that it's a dance oh <laughs> I, I wasn't even thinking of that well it's perfect <laughs> oh so good so good well um 
I'll just say on behalf of so many of us, uh, I have a request, and it's that you stay curious and and keep bringing us these insights. Um, and and I will extend a whole world of gratitude for you and your work, uh, your good and necessary work you've put in the world. It um, it shaped a lot of me and a lot of my thinking, and I'm hopeful that it's allowed me to become a better human being with more compassion and have a heck of a lot more awe um, than when I started in 2015. So thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart. Really do appreciate it. No, you, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for caring about the words that I've written in the world. Totally. It makes all the difference to me. So if, uh, if our listeners want to follow you and your work, um, where would you direct us? Twitter, Facebook, website, Amazon? What's the best place to get connected with uh, the work you're doing? Uh, you can find me in all those places. I have a website that is my name. Uh, so, I so if they have Google as a website, they can just type in Diana Butler Bass and they'll be okay. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And then there's a public Facebook page. We can't join my private Facebook page. Mark Zuckerberg won't let me have any more friends there. Uh-oh. But there's a public page. There is a public page, and I post a lot on that. And then Twitter. I I will get out there with people and mix it up on Twitter. And um, then uh, Amazon and any other place you happen to see me. Awesome. Um, I'm, a, I'm around on the web. <laughs> awesome. Yes, you are. Uh, well, Diana, thank you so much. Guys, make sure you go support Diana's work. It's beautiful. You'll be better for it. Uh, and there's a lot of beauty to unpack there. Um, I'd, I'd say we're friends now. Diana, can I say that? Are we friends now? I think so. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, that's a good day for me. Diana Butler Bass and I are now friends. So um, thank you so much. We'll catch you down the road. I hope so. Okay, Maybe Diana. next time, face-to-face with a local beer. Let's do that. I can, listen, I can make that happen. You you have come to the right spot. I can make that happen for you. <laughs> that would be pretty fantastic. Okay, Diana, we'll talk soon. Okay. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Diana as much as I did. Be sure to support her work, find her books, especially her latest, Grounded. I can tell you um, it was a book I could not put down. It was amazing. And you can also find all of her work and more information about Diana at dianabutlerbass.com. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing, and be loved.